Um, we are reading this morning from uh, Judges chapter 4. You can find it on page 245 of the Church Bibles. We're reading about Deborah. Um, bear with me with the place names. Okay. Um, <laughs> starting at verse 1, and we'll go to verse 17. Again, the Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord, now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who reigned in Hazor. Sisera, the commander of his army, was based at Harasheth Hagoyim. Because he had 900 chariots fitted with iron and had cruelly oppressed the Israelites for 20 years, they cried to the Lord for help. Now Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidor, was leading Israel at the time. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim, and the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. She sent for Barak, son of Abinoam, from Kadesh in Naphtali, and said to him, The Lord, the God of Israel, commands you, go, take with you 10,000 men of Naphtali and Zebulun, and lead them up to Mount Tabor. I will lead Sisera, the commander of Jabin's army, with his chariots and his troops to the river Kishon and give him into your hands. Barak said to her, if you go with me, I will go, but if you don't go with me, I won't go. Certainly I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver her Sisera into the hands of a woman. So Deborah went with Barak to Kadesh, there, Barak summoned Zebulun and Naphtali, and 10,000 men went up under his command. Deborah also went up with him. Now, Heber the Kenite had left the other Kenites, the descendants of Hobab, Moses' brother-in-law, and pitched his tent by the great tree in Zananim near Kadesh. When they told Sisera that Barak, son of Abinoam, had gone up to Mount Tabor, Sisera summoned from Harasheth Hagoyim to the river Kishon all his men and his 900 chariots fitted with iron. Then Deborah said to Barak, go, this is the day the Lord has given Sisera into your hands. Has not the Lord gone ahead of you? So Barak went down to Mount Tabor with 10,000 men following him. At Barak's advance, the Lord rooted Sisera and all his chariots and army by the sword. And Sisera got down from his chariot and fled on foot. Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harasheth Hagoyim, and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword. Not a man was left. Sisera, meanwhile, fled on foot to the tent of Jael, the wife of Heber the Kenite, because there was an alliance between Jabin, king of Hazor, and the family of Heber the Kenite. Stop in the reading there, but it's to be continued. So in, in, uh, in Rocky 2, there's a scene where Rocky is going soft and losing his fighting fire. And his manager, Mickey, says to him, the worst thing happened to you, Rocky, that can happen to any fighter. You got civilized. Now, this part of the Bible, as we've seen, is not very civilized. It's full of blood and gore. Um, so we have that warning this morning. But despite that, even while evil is dominating, God is still rescuing. That could be a strap line to the book of Judges, when you hear me say that, perhaps you would point up, when evil is dominating, God is still rescuing. If you could turn to Judges chapter 4 and have it open, 
we haven't really got time to go into chapter five, but chapter four is the author telling the story of deliverance, and chapter five is the song of deliverance sung by Barak and Deborah. Look at the first, the very first word, again. After Ehud died again, the Israelites did evil. It's hard to be creative with evil. There's a certain monotony about it. Most evil's been done before, and there's a staleness to it that repeats and repeats and repeats, and we see this in the book of Judges all the time, but we see it in the world all the time as well. We see it in Southampton all the time. We see it in our hearts all the time. But again, Israelites did evil in the eyes of the Lord now that Ehud was dead. So the Lord sold them into the hands of Jabin, king of Canaan, who ruled in Hazor. So here, I'm going to invite some people to come and dramatize uh, our little reading here. And let me introduce you, first of all, to Jabin, king of Canaan. So Jabin said, I am your ruler, ruler, you pitiful Israelites. Israelites. Bow to me. You're my slaves. My gods shall be your gods. And then there was a commander of Jabin's army who was a man called Sisera. And Sisera had 900 chariots. And he cruelly oppressed Israel for 20 years. Here is Sisera. Bow, you filthy Israelites. Don't cry to God. He won't save you. Now, right through history, there's been dictators like Sisera. There's been war. There's been oppression. There's been bloodshed. There's been rulers that want to dominate and show how powerful they are by being cruel, by invading countries, by enslaving peoples. We see it in Afghanistan, Myanmar, Xinjiang province. We saw it in the British colonization of many countries in the 19th century. We see at the moment with Vladimir Putin. The history is full of megalomaniac dictators, and Jabin and Sisera were two. But even in these countries, we can be sure that while evil is dominating, God is still rescuing. At the end of verse 3, we see that the Israelites cry to the Lord for help. And in the rest of the chapter, God responds to the cries of his people and rescues them through three agents. Two were pretty good, and one pretty bad. But even while evil is dominating, God is still rescuing. The first agent that we introduce ourselves to in the text is Deborah, verse 4, a godly leader. We read there, Deborah, a prophet, the wife of Lapidoth, was leading Israel at the time. She was a, a prophet, a prophetess. Prophets speak God's word, they preach, they teach, and that's what Deborah was doing. And unlike any other judge, she sought to apply God's word to the people. Here's Deborah. Dear people, the Lord is the true God. We're being oppressed because we've forsaken him. Return to him, and he will return to us and rescue us. In this chapter, she brings the direct word of the Lord to the people, but also to a man called Barak, who is the military leader serving under Deborah. Here's Barak. I am at your service, (laughs) ma'am. 
in real life maybe too. <laughs> Deborah teaches the whole nation. In verse five, we read this. She held court under the palm of Deborah between Ramah and Bethel in the hill country of Ephraim. And the Israelites went up to her to have their disputes decided. So we see about Deborah that she was extremely wise. Unlike the other judges, she led from wisdom and character, not from force and warfare. She was like a female Moses, holding court, applying the law, hearing from God, sharing his word. The only other characters in the Bible who were judges and prophets were Moses and Samuel. Mrs. Deborah sits in illustrious company. In my imagination, I wonder what she would have looked like, and I imagine the demeanor with which she would have held herself, perhaps with the demeanor of someone of dignity like Benazir Bhutto in the picture here, twice Prime Minister of Pakistan, leading a patriarchal society as a woman and in a brutally violent country. But ultimately, Deborah doesn't point to Bhutto, she points to Jesus. Paul in Colossians 2 verse 3 says about Jesus that in him are hidden all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge. Deborah was a woman of wisdom and knowledge. But when you follow Jesus, you learn basic facts about the world which enable you to be wise. Wise for salvation. You learn something about the plot line of history. You learn something about the meaning of life, who the villain is who the hero is, who the author of the whole plot is, where things are heading. You become wise for salvation when you follow Jesus because Jesus is the ultimate judge to whom Deborah points. Now let's introduce ourselves to Barak, verses six to 16, a godly soldier. Deborah instructed Barak to take 10,000 men and to fight these oppressors. Jabin and Sisera. I'll lure Sisera, Jabin's commander, away to the river. You can have the victory over him. I'll only do it if you come with me. Well, I'll only do it if you come with me. Thumbs up or thumbs down for Barak? Some Bible commentators think thumbs down. He was timid and lacking faith. The more positive view of Barak is that Barak is a hero of faith. In fact, he is listed as a hero of faith in Hebrews 11 because he listens to God's word through Deborah and he wants her to go with him because she's a godly woman who speaks God's words. For me, that's the correct view of Barak, but I'll, I'll leave that up to you. Faith means listening to God at every stage of life and showing courage. And faith means realizing, even when evil is dominating, God is still saving. And this was the faith that Barak had. In verse 10, we see that Barak did summon the 10,000 men. But he charged at an army, and it's repeated, of 900 chariots, 900 iron chariots that could cut through a foot soldier like a knife through butter. So Barak was extremely courageous. He risked his life and he was humble as well. Even though the victory was ultimately given to another, as we'll see, Barak obeyed God. He went into danger on behalf of his people. He obeyed the voice of the Lord. Verse 16, Barak pursued the chariots and army as far as Harosheth Hagoyim, 
and all Sisera's troops fell by the sword, and not a man was left. All that remains is for Barak to catch up with the fleeing Sisera. But by the time he does, Sisera will be dead, and his murderer is a stealthy female assassin called Jael. <laughs> Jael is a bit like Ehud, who we didn't look at, who stabbed fat King Eglon in the toilet and escaped through the back passage while people waited to the point of embarrassment. But here, Jael welcomes Sisera into her tent. She gives him a drink of hot milk. She lets him go to sleep. And then she hammers the tent peg into his head. <laughs> At that time, death by the hands of a woman was seen as extremely humiliating. Sisera had already humiliated himself by abandoning his troops and hiding in a woman's tent. But Deborah's prophecy came true. Deborah had prophesied this in verse 9. I will go with you, said Deborah, but because of the course you are taking, the honor will not be yours, for the Lord will deliver Sisera into the hands of a woman. Thumbs up or thumbs down for Jael? Ooh, you're not sure. Not an easy one. <laughs> Maybe she seduced and killed this aggressor before he committed atrocities against her and other women, as it was common for commanders to do when they won battles. But the heroes in the book of Judges, as we've seen in the video, are not good people. Ehud, Jael, Samson, Gideon are flawed and fallen and sinful and just like the other nations. Jael was stealthy, she was deceptive. She's supposed to be showing this man hospitality. She's supposed to have an alliance with him through her husband, but she turned her bedroom into a battlefield and she turned her guest into a bloody corpse. All through the Hebrew Bible, God accommodates himself to these violent times until he can reveal himself fully in the person of Jesus, who is the victorious judge, the deliverer, but who is also a prince of peace. We see in this story and in the whole of Judges that even when evil is dominating, God is still rescuing. Okay, if you want to have the Bible passage open again at Judges chapter 4, we've looked at a story of deliverance and victory for Israel. We looked at three agents that God used, a godly leader, Deborah, a godly soldier, Barak, and a stealthy assassin, Jael. But sovereign over these three agents is a character who's mentioned in verse 1, verse 2, verse 3, verse 6, verse 9, verse 14, verse 15, and almost every verse in chapter 5. And that is the Lord, Yahweh. He is the true Lord over all the nations, and he is at the center of this passage because he is faithful to his people despite their unfaithfulness. Have a look at the structure of the text. The writer is a genius, and it, the structure is called a, a chiasm. Can we have the next slide on? Oh, you don't have the, the structure. Okay, so the, the structure is, ah, here we go. 
So this is, this is called a chiasm, where the top and the bottom match, the next line matches, and then the middle of the sandwich is what we're meant to focus on. This happens all the time in the Bible. Uh, the whole of Genesis is a chiasm. The story of Jonah is a chiasm. The story of the Tower of Babel is a chiasm. Um, so the Lord is the deliverer. We see that in verses 14 and 15. In verse 15, the writer attributes the victory to the Lord. The Lord routed Caesarea. The Lord's the one who wins the victory and uses these characters to, as agents to effect his deliverance. In the same way, of course, he used treacherous Judas. He used the cruel Roman soldiers. He used the stealthy Pharisees and teachers of the law. He used the cowardly Pontius Pilate to effect the greatest deliverance and the greatest victory, the most comprehensive deliverance which reverses the corruption that, that is here because of the fall. And he does that through Jesus' death and resurrection. Because Jesus came at a time, of course, when evil was dominating. Violence was celebrated in the Roman Empire. You know, spectator sport. We've got the Commonwealth Games. Now, spectator sport then was watching beasts tear people apart. Or watching gladiators battle to the death. God's people then were subdued. They were milked for their taxes to fund the Roman war machine. But through his life and death and resurrection, Jesus has won a victory, and that's why we're here. We come on Sunday mornings to celebrate a deliverance that is past, that is present, and that is future. If you know Jesus, you've been delivered and saved, in the words of Psalm 40, that we'll look at next Sunday evening. He's pulled you out of a pit like those Thai boys in the Tamluan pit who needed deliverance. He's gone in and he's set your feet on a rock and he's put a new song in your mouth. But there is also a future day of victory coming, says the book of Revelation, when that great dragon himself will be hurled into the lake of fire and God will wipe away every tear and there will be no more death or crying or pain. I wonder what the greatest victory that you've participated in or seen has been. One of the greatest victories for me was on the 22nd of August, 2019. Is that date familiar to you, Sally? It's your birthday, isn't it? 25th, I oh, got that wrong. <laughs> got that wrong, should have, uh, should have consulted. That was when Ben Stokes played an extraordinary innings where he put on a partnership of 73 with Jack Leach to beat the Australians at Headingley. Jack Leach scored one, uh, Stokes scored 72. But you know, the ultimate victory for the human race is won over the ultimate enemy. And the ultimate enemy for us is death itself. Can we close by, by turning to 1 Corinthians 15 and a victory song I'll read the victory song from verse 51. You might be thinking of Handel's Messiah as I read it. Listen, I tell you a mystery. We will not all sleep, but we will all be changed. In a flash, in the twinkling of an eye at the last trumpet, the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised, imperishable, and we will be changed. 
For the perishable must clothe itself with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality. When the perishable has been clothed with the imperishable, and the mortal with immortality, the saying that is written in Isaiah 25 will come true. Death has been swallowed up in victory. Where, O death, is your victory? Where, O death, is your sting? The sting of death is sin, and the power of sin is the law. But thanks be to God, he gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. In Isaiah 25, verse 5, it says, On this mountain there'll be a victory feast of sweet meats and aged wine. I'm looking forward to that. But one got to eat a different meal, and that was Jesus. He swallowed up death. He ate death so that we can taste victory. And so he swallowed up death. Now, anyone who saw Christ die would be astonished at the claim that he is the victor, that he is the conqueror. Look at Jesus, skewered and spread-eagled naked on a Roman cross, robed, robbed of all freedom of movement, stripped of his dignity, covered in blood and spit, crushed by the ruthless power of Rome. But even though evil is dominating, God is still rescuing because while Christ was crushed, he himself was crushing the serpent's head. The victim was the victor, and the cross is still the throne from which he rules the world. And that's what we celebrate every Sunday. Even when evil is dominating, the Lord is still rescuing. So if you're overwhelmed this morning by the evil you see around you or experience within you, your Lord is still sovereign. He's still on the throne. His plans are still to prosper. He's not forgotten you. In the words of Jesus, look up because your redemption is drawing near.